0: This time on our tree in Depth, hey, we're talking to Bill Vanderheiden from Iron Will Outfitters, Iron Will Broadheads. You've seen them, you've wanted to shoot them, maybe you have. We're gonna go in depth, talk about broadheads in general, how we test them, how you engineer them, and more specifically, all the background information about what lengths Iron Will has gone to to make sure they're putting out the best broadhead possible for a good hunting situation. We go over the differences between expandables fixed blades why iron will is dead set on fixed blades being the right broadhead for certain situations and we talk a little bit about expandables and things like that so if you want to find out more about broadheads what you should be hunting with why broadheads are different and what is the difference between a good broadhead a great broadhead and the best broadhead money can buy you might find this one interesting so check it out i'm marty jednick your host of archery in depth let's check this one out All right. We are here. Iron Will Broadheads with Bill Vander Heiden. Bill, how's it going, man?
1: Good, Marty. How how are you doing?
0: We're doing good. I'm really excited to talk to you. We're recording this right before our tree season starts. So lots of stuff happening, lots of people ready to hit the woods and hopefully trying to have some success and putting their animals down and finding them.
1: Yeah, busy time right now. Everybody's... uh buying broadheads last minute here, everybody's trying to get their bows set up. And so yeah, helping a lot of people with, with their, with their arrow setups, their bows, what they need for broadheads, things like that. So busy time of year and at the same time, trying to get ready for my hunts to start in about two weeks here, myself.
0: Nice. And I think you live in Colorado, right? Right. I do. Are you going to travel around other States, all that other good stuff.
1: Uh, I do this year. I'm going to hunt, um, Colorado for, for elk and bear uh starting early September and then go up to Montana for elk. Um and then I've got four whitetail hunts planned this year. Uh Texas, Indiana, Wisconsin, and South Dakota for whitetail. So and then Mule Deer in uh, Colorado too. So that's what I have have planned coming up here.
0: That's awesome. I know I have my Iron Wheel broadheads in my quiver right now, ready for my Montana elk hunt. We're ready to rock and roll. It's gonna be nice. Good. Gonna be good. Well, how I like to start my podcasts off are a little different than most. It's something that get the audience to get to know you a little bit better. So there's three questions and three things I ask you hunting related to, to let everybody know a little bit more about Bill. First question is what is your favorite big game animal to hunt?
1: I would say, um, I would say elk. I mean, I like, I like a lot of them. I like kind of like a all that I do, but, um, you know, bugling bull, getting in close, getting a shot on them is probably my favorite. I would agree. Love it.
0: What is your favorite cut of meat? Doesn't have to be a game animal, but meat eater, what's your favorite cut of meat?
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of hard to beat a backstrap, like backstrap on a an elk. Um and actually I like elk and deer and antelope and caribou and everything, but um yeah, a uh, large piece of elk backstrap, hard to beat that, um, I would say.
0: Totally agree. Totally agree. Last question to get to know you a little bit better. I'm sure you've shot a bunch considering your business, but what's the favorite bow you've ever shot?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I had a Switchback XT for like seven years, so I definitely liked that bow. Um, still got that one hanging in my barn. Couldn't quite get rid of that one. I've had several bows since, but like it, at the time, that one was, was great for me. Um, more recently I've got a number of Matthews and Hoyt bows. I really like them both. Um, but I'd say that the VXR, um, I kept and used for a, an extra year or two there because I really like that bow has been really good for me too.
0: Yeah. Those new Matthews bows are awful. Nice. Awful. Nice. Well, thanks, man. I like learning a little bit more about the guest before we kind of dive in because there's a million things to talk about here for sure with, with Iron Will. So let's talk a little bit about some of the different broadheads. And before we kind of get into the specifics of each one of your offerings, I'd love to talk a little bit about your testing. In the past, I've, I've learned some about you and I have always found it extremely interesting, the lengths that you've gone to and your company's gone to in testing different parameters to figure out what you guys believe is the best broadhead, best design, best everything. I was wondering if you could tell us, you know, a little bit about broadstrokes, sort of types of testing you've done in the past, what you're kind of testing nowadays and how that has helped shape and evolve the iron wheel broadheads.
1: Yeah, I started out really, I wasn't planning to develop my own broadhead initially, I was just trying to one that worked better after i had a broadhead fail on an elk shoulder blade and i've been a mechanical engineer for years and using you know a lot of the latest engineering tools um available and uh really decided to apply some engineering to to choosing you know becoming a better bow hunter and the thing right in front of me was like i had this broadhead fail on an elk shoulder blade how do i how do i do something better re-engineer something better or or find something better that's already available and so you know start doing a lot of researching a lot of testing and um test a lot of different mediums over the years to try and it's hard to simulate what happens in an animal without using an animal and that's kind of where i ended up is doing a lot of push force testing and impact testing with you know, hide bones, meat, um, you know, parts of, parts of animals, really. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot, you know, I've tested other things in the past, um, layers of cardboard, layers of plywood, layers of sheet steel. Um, you can kind of learn things from a lot of them, ballistic gel. Um, but really none of them quite act like an animal and they can kind of mislead you, I think one thing. So, um, anyways, it's, if you're really trying to get through an animal uh, durability on heavy bones is, is a good test. And then, you know, what's the force to penetrate through hide, muscle tissue, things like that. So that's where I ended up focusing a lot of the, the testing on. And I still do, and I still do today as I evaluate different designs.
0: I love it. One of the things that I think makes iron wheel special is the broadheads are made out of a two tool steel, correct?
1: Yeah, that's, that's correct. And it was many iterations. Um, I've I got a background as a, as a steelhead on my first, my first job out of college, I worked in product development, but I also had a, um, a kind of a technology development program, which was tooling technology advancement for 3M company. And so back then you had kind of your main job and then they had you do some kind of technology development, at least in the groups that I was in. And so I I had a strong materials background anyways in mechanical engineering with a lot of the classes I'd taken. But then I really dug in deep to tool steels and steel, heat, steel types, heat treatment, alloying, which ones work better, you know, so specialized steel for certain jobs. And so a lot of that background definitely helped when I started taking on this, the challenge. What what I realized is that a broadhead has a pretty unique set of requirements and it's got to, um, you know, cut stuff, but yet fly at high speed and hit potentially hard bone, you know, a heavy, heavy impact, not many things in you know, out there do that. So I, I don't feel like there was a lot of, um, steel developments specifically for broadheads, for example. Um, so I went through, you know, multiple steels until I found one that kind of met everything I wanted for that higher impact strength, toughness, um, and then, keeping an edge and being able to cut through bone, you know, winning that battle of over the bone, you know, you want your broadhead blades to win that battle and not just crumple and bend, but, but cut through the bone, um, and get, get the pass through and not just, you know, crush and stop right there. So,
0: and it's kind of a trade-off, right? When we're talking about the different steels, what might be good or bad, my understanding, and you definitely know more than me, but the, my understanding of the trade-off is, you know, the more hardness you get in it, you could reach the point where it then becomes brittle and it'll just explode, right? So you need to balance some softness so it'll retain an edge, but also hardness so it won't just break apart.
1: That's true. But the good thing about tool steels is that's much higher hardness. In um, in stainless steels, yeah, most stainless blades are going to be in that 50 Rockwell C, uh, 50 52. If they were up to if they're up in the high 50s, they'd be way too brittle and they'd just snap. And we see that with some of the blades out there, um, some of the stainless blade steels um, that are claimed to be premium blade steels that are used that are stainless, they snap super easy. Um, I've tested them and find that to be true. So that's that's really kind of an issue with stainless. Most blades are 420 stainless. Some are 440 or S30V or some other um, what would be considered a maybe a more premium blade steel that's stainless. But the issues there is that they're not good on impact strength. You know, they're finding a knife where you're not gonna, where it's gonna be thicker. It's gonna be eighth inch thick and you're just cutting stuff. You're not flying through 100 feet per second and hitting something hard. Um, but um, anyway, the tool the tool steel is, like A2 is made in using metal stamping dies to cut other metals. And it's because it has that ability to have the high toughness, even at the high hardness. So even at 60 Rockwell C, when I do my break strength tests, um, you know, they don't even move at a thousand pounds applied in like three point bending, trying to kind of bend it in half. But if I can get high enough to cause it to yield, it won't break. It doesn't break apart. It just kind of kinks a little bit. So it's kind of amazing to me at that high a hardness that it still is got that toughness to basically bend and not break. Um, and you won't. And really, that's all that work went into that not only that steel, but just the heat treat process, um, to get there. Cause it, the standard heat treat process won't get you there either. Yeah, but that's, uh, yeah, that's I'll... where it ended up.
0: I wanted to talk to you about that. I think that's something most people don't understand. That's a pretty significant difference. I think between iron wills and other broadheads. is it's not just the steel, it's what you're doing with it afterwards and you're cryogenically treating it and you're tempering it. Correct. And you have, I believe a patented process that only you have that gets it to that certain hardness for you guys.
1: Yeah, it's, it's proprietary basically, but it, it includes a cryogenic treatment. Um, and what, yeah, we could talk on a microstructure level, what that does, but basically I I do everything I can to get the top performance out of that steel and have it be as strong as possible, no weak spots and and not be brittle. Um, it's kind of like what a high-end knife maker does when he's making a, you know, a $5,000 knife, you know, it would go through these different treatments And, um, yeah, you get in a bargain with our broadheads, even though they're expensive, (laughs) the processes we go through to make sure those blades are as, as good as possible is, is pretty extensive.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Something else I think that's interesting that unless you really get into it, you might not think of it, but the ferals, the ferals are also hardened, which is a big part of the broadhead that can't fail when it's going through an animal and you want to reuse it. Right.
1: Right. And I think a lot of. People don't get that either. They're like, I know aluminum will bend. You know, aluminum's not good on impact, but I shoot a steel ferrule, so I'm good. Well, just a 302 stainless, which is pretty much what everything, most everything is out there, 302, 303 stainless. Um, it's not hardened, it's not really that strong. You know, it's, if you, versus um, like a martensitic stainless that's hardened is gonna be twice as strong, two to three times stronger. And, and that's really what I found I needed to do to not have ferrules bend on heavy bone impacts, um, especially side impacts when you're say hitting the, the, the humerus, um, or I test a lot of femur bones, but you glance off the side of that bone. Um, you can bend a ferrule if it's not hardened steel or titanium. So that's what I settled on, on for that material. And yeah, there are a lot more, we machine them in the hardened state too, because we want to have it, the dimensions perfect. We don't want any just dis- distortion from heat treating. Um, so it's a slow machining process, and that's part of why they're expensive too. But the performance is is much better.
0: I was always curious how the design came to be, as far as the flight characteristics of your broadheads. You know, it's it's in general broadhead shaped, but you know, when you look around, you could see some that are really long, some that are really short and stubby, all sorts of different designs. Iron will has pretty universal shape to it and i was curious how you sort of came to that uh as far as flight characteristics
1: yeah i started longer um you know i early on read the Asprey reports and uh in the 3 to 1 recommendation um for penetration and so i started longer it didn't take me much it didn't take me long to realize that the 3 to 1's not really um it's not really applicable here that, you know, the mechanical advantage is, is something you'd apply to a, a wedge. If it was like three inches long, one inch tall, um, that would apply, but a broadhead isn't really wedging an animal part an inch. It's really slicing it. And it didn't take me too long to realize that, that you don't need that three inch length. You just need really sharp edges that stay sharp to keep the force low to cut through. Um, But I also saw as I was shortening it up, the flight got better. They're more forgiving in flight. And I settled on uh, on a length that is, um, you know, that I can shoot very long distance with a tuned bow and shoot well. Um, And it's not too difficult to stabilize with, you know, the veins that are available, um, readily available today. So it's, um, anyway, that's why, that's kind of why it got shorter. Um, I wanted it to make it relatively compact for good long range flight, but yeah, wide, you know, wide enough to make a good, good cutting hole. Um, and that's really where I settle in on, on size. And we have, we have our, you know, our S series, like S 125 is a little bit longer than our S 100, um, blade. And then we have our wides that are wider than, than those blades. Um, and, to me it you go bigger like our wide solid would be less forgiving than just our s series and so that'll depend a bit on how far you want to shoot how good your form is how good your bow tuned is things like that um but general our standard heads i think anybody can get those to shoot well um with a little bit of effort we can go through like what i feel like is is kind of needed there on arrows and bow setups to get fixed heads to shoot well but um I, I don't see a reason anybody can't get those tissue to, to well.
0: Yes, I absolutely would love to hear what your suggestions on tuning. However, you mentioned one thing that I think is worth noting, uh, Ed Ashby, how big of an influence is his and his reports on you and iron will in general this episode of archery in depth is brought to you by XFocus 365 the maker of premium lenses for archery did you know lenses aren't just for target archery they're also for hunting you can hunt with a lens and it makes your life a lot easier if you're looking to buy a lens to go hunting with check out the XFocus 365 gh series of lenses these will not only shed water good they're tough so they're kind of made to go through the brush through the scrapes this that without getting messed up without showing scratches on your lens Excellent lens when you want to see the target a little closer, a little clearer. You could put it in all sorts of scope housings, like a spot hod, things like that. Go check them out when you're ready to take your hunting experience to the next level. Go check out a lens. You can find them at xfocus365.com. You can also find them on arcuswork.com. Go try them. They're amazing. Check it out.
1: Yeah, well, early on, that was one of the first, you know, I had this broadhead fail on an elk shoulder blade. I think it was 2004. Um, and I started trying to research what was available out there. And, and there wasn't much available out there. I mean, there was on just general archery and, you know, the, the aerodynamics of aeroflight, which I read, you know, cite all those too, but as far as broadheads and, um, you know, broadhead studies or research, there wasn't much there. I found his, his studies. And initially I just read them and thought, well, here's, here's the answer. I should just follow this. Um, and I went heavy the next year. I had, a, you know, 600 plus grain arrow. I had a big, heavy broadhead on the front and big, long, heavy, you know, broadhead on the front and flight was poor. And I, and it's trajectory was not going to work for me because at the same time I was hunting elk and mule deer out West and I wanted to extend my range, um, to 50, 60 plus yards. And you know, my arrow was just nose, it was just this big, you know, arc dropping in, you know, bows. I didn't have the bow speed then that I do in in recent bows, but I pretty quickly figured out, well, this trajectory doesn't really work for me. Also, I didn't see that it was needed as I was shooting through, um, back then I was shooting, I was, I was saving like elk shoulders with hide, muscle bone on them and shooting through them. And I saw, I don't really need, I don't really need this either. So, um, anyways, I've talked to him a number of times in the last, um, couple of years and I, I like his input. I think he's got good, good stuff and we actually agree on more things than we disagree. But, um, I would say that there's a few things in there that doesn't quite agree with the science and physics of what should be happening there. Um, and there's some differences just when you're shooting, uh, a longbow at 15, 20 yards and what's important to you versus shooting a compound bow and wanting to shoot, you know, say 40 to 60 yards, um, at elk or mule deer or something. So it kind of steer you a different direction, but no, he's, he's a good guy. I I like him. He's entertaining. I love hearing the stories about shooting white rhinos at, at, you know, four yards and stuff like that, (laughs) but no, he's a nice guy. I think he's just trying to help people out. I feel like, um, his studies aren't a lot of it's anecdotal. It's not really set up as you would, um, a scientific study where you're trying to compare one thing to another and get repeats and get, get the data in a form such that you can do statistically significant differences and really identify the level of the effects. Um, And, you know, it was a different time and he has different background um, than, than I do in engineering. So it's, I can understand why he did what he did. And it's um, so not that answered everything, but, He's a good guy. It was a good starting point for, for my work. And I still appreciate talking to him getting his input, but it's, I've definitely branched, you know, there's a lot of differences in our products versus what he just would pick as his ideal. I think he said recently, his ideal setup was a 300 grain broadhead and a 700 grain arrow. Um, <laughs> and you know, that was within the past year or So. so what he would choose and I would choose would be different. But if you if you get into the details, we agree on a lot of things. Um, durability of components, very important. Sharpness, edge retention, important. He called it surface finish in his list of 12. but um, And he never had the ability to get to the sharpness levels, I think, and get to the levels of steels that I was able to. And we've had that discussion. He understands he was kind of limited on that. Um, but no, he's a good guy. Yeah. that's kind of my background there.
0: Interesting stuff. If the audience hasn't heard of him, if they just Google at Ashby and the Ashby foundation and some of his information, really interesting. Uh, it is uh, different. And like you talked about, there's, seems like you're a lot more scientific method bound to it because you have an engineering background, but it's, it's great stuff to look at and check out. Maybe change your mind about some stuff. Maybe you won't, but fun to look at.
1: Yeah, definitely. And if you're shooting really big animals like Cape Buffalo or, or white rhino, <laughs> and, uh, I know you can't shoot white rhino anymore, but if you're shooting a really big African game with a longbow, I don't think you can go wrong just following his recommendations. Yep. It's more so that when you're modern compound and white you know, North American animals in the ranges that most guys want to shoot where you might you know, do something a little different.
0: Totally. Uh, I would love to get back to tuning and how you do you have a, a program or sort of a protocol that you do to try to tune in a bow, maybe starting with fletching and, and some other stuff? Very curious how you do it.
1: Yeah, what what I would say is, and and the reason this is in my head right now is that um I've just tested a bunch of uh different veins with our, our broadheads, um, where I took the bow out of tune and looked to see how how well different veins stabilize. Um, field points and then our standard broadheads and then our wide solid broadheads. Um, and you know, going in and out of tune, I, I could see differences. And what by going out of tune, I'd move the rest off to one side, and it would, it would cause the broadheads to start varying left to right versus the field points. And you know, 40 yards, I saw I'd see my bear, bear shaft we'll get a little more detail on this, but a bear shaft versus flush shaft, they'd be a foot apart at 40 yards. Um, And that's kind of my baseline test of is a bow tuned or not. Just go shoot a flat shaft. These are with field points on shoot a flat shaft and a bear shaft. Um, And my bear shaft, I usually keep one that's got like a wrap on it and it might even have the vein, the feet of the veins on it, but I cut off the, the vein, just, just so there's no veins sticking up mm-hmm. and the weights are about the same. I might even wrap a little bit of, you know, that steel duct tape over it. I might even try to match the weights perfectly, but even if they're close, you're, you're okay. But anyways, you can also just have a bear shaft without veins, maybe put two wraps on it or something, get it close, but shoot those side by side. It's a 20, say 20 yards, 30 yards. And if the bow is tuned, and I was just doing this last night with, with the new bow that I was setting up. Um, once it's tuned those two arrows will will be hitting you know within an inch of each other probably at 30 yards and the shafts will be parallel um if it's not tuned and and by tuned i mean that the knock the string is pushing the knock directly in line with the rest so that when that arrow comes off or the bear shaft comes off it's just going straight um that's that's a tune bow if it's not going straight but if it's if it's say the tail is right of the point you know if it's tail right and it's you can shoot your paper to test that but um i feel like a good test and it's something i do periodically throughout the season or after hunt i just go shoot a bear shaft on the flat shaft at 30 if it's still tuned if that bear shaft's coming straight off your bow it'll hit right next to the flat shaft if it's if it's hitting you know say four inches left and it's got a in the if it's hitting say four inches left of your flat shaft and the knock is over to the right near that flat shaft, you know, that means it's, it's coming off tail, right. The veins aren't correcting it, straightening it back out. So it just ends up shooting off, off to the left. Um, so that's kind of my test to make sure as far as how you tune each bow, it's, it's going to be a little different in general. I like to set the rest to the, perfect nominal position for the manufacturer, which is like, I think 13, 16s for a Hoyt. I believe it's 0.781 for a Matthews. Um, that's some inside information, but I think 13, 16 is pretty close, but you know, between that three quarter and 13, um, you know, about that point set, three quarter, um, 13, 16s in that range, mm-hmm. set the rest to nominal, um, put, put it perpendicular, you know in your string going through the burger boy burger hole i like to go centered maybe a hair above centered um to start with and then if i'm getting a um you know adjust adjust knot position or rest a bit small um to get the up up and down tears out and then on right to left i prefer to leave the rest there and and um you know shim cams i think both white and matthews you shim cams now used to be a yoke tuned Hoyts, different bows. Those are the ones I'm most familiar with and I shoot them both a lot. I mean, different bows have different ways of tuning that in, but I'd say I like leaving the rest about nominal to start with, trying to get most of that correction in with the cam positions, shifting them left to right. There should be lots of stuff on YouTube on how to do that or you know, contact Bow Shop. Um, and then it's the fine tuning stuff where I'll move the rest a little bit. Um, and, and then I'm, doing the what I said with the bear shaft shooting those at 20 and 30 and doing a slight typically a slight right left up or down movement of my rest to get those things to hit together and then I feel like and then I'm confident the arrows coming straight off the bow um that's and before the bear shaft thing I will I will shoot through paper that's my first you know a check on the bow and that's how I do like the the cam shifts things like that I'm shooting through a paper I'm typically shooting a Fletch shaft and a bear shaft. Um, I like the bear shaft. I can just see those little right, left, up or down tears more easily. Um, so yeah, I always have a bear shaft kind of with me, kind of built up similar to that arrow, my hunting arrow build that I'm going to be using for paper tuning and checking my tune throughout the season.
0: Couldn't agree more. I'm a big proponent of bear shaft testing. And just for, the average guy that may not fully understand what you're talking about there, you know, whenever you have your arrow and it's fletched, whether it's three fletch, four fletch, whatever, you know, those fletchings do way more than you think. They have a weight to them. And when you bear shaft something either, like Bill said, you can cut the vein off and leave the little, the foot sort of cup that attaches to the arrow there, or you could take them completely off. But when you do that, you're gonna have a different weight at the back, which could affect it. So you just add some weight to the back, whether it's wraps or some tape or some whatever, try to get those weights approximately right or or dead on if you're (laughs) if you're crazy about it which is great and then when you're shooting at the target you want that bear shaft to be hitting exactly where your fletched is hitting as well if it's not then you get into this tuning like you i keep some of those old hoits around with the yoke turning tuning because i think that's way easier to tune than than the other stuff but you know matthew's top hats are easy Botex and elites are super easy these days as well but yeah I think you're dead on, dead on with getting a bear shaft, right. That'll make a broadhead and a field tip shoot very, very close. Do you have a uh, preference as far as, uh, fletchings, fletching configurations, particularly for your broadheads?
1: Yeah. What I found is, um, higher, higher profile veins, you know, height, height gives you more benefit for stability than length. And part of that's just the boundary layer effect that the speed of the velocity of the air near the arrow is not, is not top speed. You know, it's, it's uh, when you're, it's probably a quarter inch out from the arrow when you start getting to like that two eighty five feet per second um, or whatever your arrow flight is. So I feel like the, the height on veins, like if you've got, and I just tested this, I just tested like four lower profile veins on there and they gave very little steering. Um, so I don't, I don't think 0.4, and I know a lot of people like that size, 0.38, whatever, for target shooting, don't use it for fixed heads. It doesn't stabilize very well. And and what I mean by that is if the arrow is not going straight, but it's going, let's just say it's tipped up a little bit, and then the airflow is going across that blade, it's creating some lift and going to push that arrow off, off course. Well, th- it's also flowing across the vein, so your so your veins are tipped tip down from a straight line, this the, the line of travel. Um, if they're tipped down, the airflow across there is going to push the back of the arrow back up and kind of restore it back to going straight. You need those veins to win, you know, in that teeter-totter there, and you want them to win by a lot. And um, if, if they're too small, it just will become unstable and not really correct, and it'll just go too far off course. And what I found is I like three veins, um, at say two and a half, three degree helical to get some rotation as well. But, uh, um, I think three veins that are over a half inch tall. So the ones that are 0.55, 0.58 all I've found, they all work pretty good. You know, that would be like a, a blazer, a max hunter, um, Q2, I fusion Two. um, there's there's a few other like bully. There's a few other that are just that same size. I think those work well. Um, you can do a four fletch too, but I found a three fletch is really um, in that height stabilizes really well, and you're not adding any more drag or weight at the back end than you need to. So that's kind of my favorite, I would say.
0: I like it. I think that's a winning setup. Yeah, I mean, finding the right and testing different veins on your broadheads and your broadhead setup is really important and. Bill and I were talking a little bit about it. You know, you need to test this stuff and shoot your bow before season. Please get out there and test and test and practice and practice because you don't want to be out there for the first time, figuring out your broadheads and your setup while you're hunting. That's a terrible idea.
1: Yeah. And you know, guys will set up for target or, you know, I talked to a guy recently that was, he didn't want to change his target setup cause he was shooting four inch groups at 80 yards. And, um, but he wasn't happy with his fixed blade broadhead flight. And I could, I looked at his arrow and said, you got like four things wrong with this. Um, And, you know, he had a, it was, it was an FMJ. So it's a heavy shaft. He only had 116 grains up front. So low, lower FOC He had really little target veins on there. So I told him you've got very little, very little steering going on here. You've got an FOC that's below 10%. So that's kind of your pivot point. Whereas a higher FOC, you'd have a longer lever arm to the to the veins, so they get more more steering from that. So a low FOC, really small veins at the back, that's that's um it can work with the target point, sure, but it's not going to stabilize a fixed plate head very well. Um, he didn't want to change it because that was just worked well for target. I'm like, it just depends on what's important to you, right? What's important to me is hitting an an where I want to with the fixed head that's gonna you're not. With a broadhead that's not going to fail, but it's going to get through bone. Um, so to me, I will change my arrow setup so that flies well, and not just one that I can get, you know, a target head to hold. I don't care if I hold a four-inch group or a, a, a six-inch group at eighty yards. Really, either one's going to kill an animal for me. But I want that broadhead to fly well. Yep,
0: and that brings up a good point. I wanted to touch base on. We don't need to get into a whole FOC debate, but something I really enjoy about your company is you offer broadheads from the weight of just the broadhead of 100 grains all the way up to 250 grains plus inserts plus collars so you can really mess with a good recipe for whatever weight you're looking for and everything in between and I, you know i think it's nice to offer all those different things for the different people that want different combinations i think it's great
1: yeah it, i don't know if it was a great business decision <laughs> <laughs> To be honest with you, but I've never I've never done things just for a great business decisions. I've done them to make the highest performing products I can and kind of and meet you know everybody's setup that wants to use them. Um, but you're right, we have great we have 150, 175, 200, 225, 250. That's a lot of different offerings, a lot of different you know SKUs and products we have to make. But it, it helps people kind of dial in their setup and and. I would encourage people don't think about it just as your broadhead weight, but your total weight up front and what's appropriate for your, you know, arrow spine and an FOC range you want things like that. A lot of people are hung up on wanting a certain broadhead weight, and um, yeah, I think you can you can get the total weight you want through broadhead and components and consider the whole system when you choose that.
0: Yeah, and keep in mind, people, when you move up in weight for your broadheads and the whole setup up front, that will affect the spine of your arrow. So, spine up. Spine up. Um, let's talk real quick Bill about sharpness. You know, there's lots of knuckleheads out there trying crazy ways to sharpen broadheads. I was curious what uh, is the correct way to sharpen an iron will with your with your proprietary methods and your steels so that you maintain a good edge, you're not messing it up. How how do we properly take care of them?
1: Yeah, you can really sharpen them how you would sharpen a knife. Um, you know maybe if you have a good knife a high-end knife that you want to sharpen and 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 keep you know keep sharp you know it's really kind of those same methods there's different you know different people are good at different things i wouldn't use uh, some some things i wouldn't use is like a power belt grind you know type of a setup that works fine on a knife but it just takes off too much material too quick rounds, rounds corners off too much um i wouldn't do that um i like Personally, I like using, you know, flat stones. Um, If people are handy at um, holding the angle by hand and touching up their knife, they can do the same thing with broadheads. You know, often I am shooting a a broadhead, you know, through animals, through targets, and then in reusing them and checking to see, if they still shave hair and often they will, if you're shooting a few times in a target, you just want to check that arrow with that broadhead. Typically it still shaves hair. You can put it back in your quiver. Often that happens on an animal too. shoot through it. And if it's still sh- all that, if all the edges still shave hair and it spins true, you'll put clean it off with some alcohol. If you want put it back in your, put it back in your quiver. Um, I re- reuse heads a lot. And um, what I'll see is okay. If they're not shaving hair anymore, and I'm typically if they still look per, if the edges still look good, like no damage, I'm just taking an extra fine stone. We sell this little double-sided stone with the white side that's extra fine. And there's some videos on our YouTube channel. I'll just I'll just by hand kind of touch it up there. And you can just see how I do it. I'm just kind of trying to hold that the angle, going back and forth, touching it up. And usually in about a minute, I can get it shaved hair again and it's it's ready to to go. Um it's got a little more damage needs a little more work then i'm using i like a knife sharpening kit that um has flat stones at set angles and kme makes a great um knife sharpening kit for this um i've used lansky gatco i know wicked edge makes one i think there's a number of them that are clamping up the blade and you got to take the blade out of the ferrule um, for this use a torx T six, take the blade out, clamp it up. And, um, you can go depending on what the edge is like, if it's, if there's, if it's damaged, you probably want to go like a medium and re kind of regrind that face, but medium, fine, extra fine. That's usually good. I mean, you can go and, um, you know, you know, strop it or do things beyond that if you want to, but, you know, go watch videos on how to sharpen knives and you can do pretty much do that with our, our steel. It's 60 Rockwell C, but there's not, it's not a bunch of like, they're not like a ton of big vanadium carbide particles in it or things like you get in CPM 90V or some of these um, super steels for knives. Um, It's being a tool steel, you know, we chose that for higher toughness, but it's actually a pretty workable steel too. So even though it's that high hardness, I don't think people really have a hard time sharpening it. If you've, if you know how to sharpen a knife or have spent any, time doing that it shouldn't be too hard for you
0: nice uh something i personally really like looking at and i'm curious about of what the practical differences are are the standard length shank of most of the iron roll broadheads and then the snyder core shank which is a longer one for micro diameter arrows can you tell us a little bit more about that i think a lot of people understand where it came to be but uh Kind of if people are looking for, you know, what's the difference? What might be beneficial for them or not beneficial for them? Can you touch the base on the different shanks for those two options?
1: Yeah. And really to kind of step back when microdammers came along and the deep six system came out and it was, it was kind of, you know, it was more popular then than it is now. Right. Like a number of manufacturers, we're making deep six heads. Um, a lot of people are trying it out. I think a lot of people were a bit unhappy that it wasn't as durable as standard. You know, so a standard shank broadhead is about 204 diameter. Um, and then you get into the threads, which are 832. And a deep six is, um, is about a 165, 166 um, diameter shank. And then the threads are a 640, which is a finer thread. And if you were using it with a hit insert, it went down in the arrow, you didn't really didn't have any, anything but carbon kind of holding the sides of that shank. And especially if the, the heads were made of, of aluminum, which a lot of them were, or just a, even a softer steel, you get a hard side impact and they, they just bent a little too easily for most people. Um, fine for target heads. And you know they killed all the deer. I'm sure too, but it was just they didn't quite have the durability that people were used to with standard. And um, anyway, so I think it kind of got a bit of a a bad rep, but a lot of it was because maybe the materials weren't that strong in the heads people were using. Um, I was I've gone back and forth usually every couple of years from 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 micros to what I call small like two four ID versus micro and. Yeah. I've actually have both of them set up currently and test them both. But when I shoot a micro diameter arrow, I really like, I don't want a half out or outsert. I don't want to add the tolerances. I don't want to add that, that breaker bar out in the front. That just bends too easy. Um, I want my head to spin true perfectly true and really very few of them do on half outs or outserts, um, just cause of the tolerance stack up. And then, and then they bend too easy. So if they start out true, they don't stay that way very well. And that's my experience, but man, I hear from so many customers all the time too. When I shoot a micro, I want the, I like to have the broadhead shank down inside the arrow for perfect alignment and then reinforce it with, with our impact collars, which is hardened steel or titanium. It goes over the outside and overlaps the hit. That's really my preference for micros. Um, and the, so we do sell a deep six system and it's just the standard Easton deep six heads. And we're not the only ones other companies make that deep six heads too. But what I really wanted was a longer shank version of that. Cause that, that shank is only like 0.3 inches on a standard deep six, um, before you get into the threads. And I wanted that to be longer, to add some strength, add some more alignment to the idea of the shaft. And so that's what the Snyder core. And I worked with, with Aaron Snyder on that. We both wanted an improved system for micro diameter arrows, Bounced some ideas back and forth. Um, and then came out with, with that. So it's got a one inch long kind of a shank that's solid before you get into the threads. Um, and then it uses the same 640 thread. So you can use a deep six hits on the back of it to kind of get the total weight you want. And, one thing I have found, and this is really something Aaron came up with, but I've tested a lot too, is just you can just hot melt the whole thing in as well and not uh, epoxy it. And that's actually my preferred method. If I use micros, is to use the Snyder core system, hot melt the whole thing in. And then I have like two and a half inches of solid reinforced core that's all bonded to the idea of the shaft with the impact collar over it. Man, that's pretty bomb proof in that micro diameter arrow. It's, um, if you're, I'm not going to push people towards micro because you know, everything gets more expensive. It's, it's little, you can't use standard heads. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's some drawbacks there, but if you're into high performance and you love those micros, man, try that system and hot melt it all in. And I think you'd be pretty happy with it
0: when you're hot melting it in. Are you hot melting the hit insert too, or are you not doing that at all and just hot melting the shank in there?
1: The whole thing in that case yeah there's a video on our youtube channel too that where i just kind of show how i do it but put the hit on the back um i just i loosen it like a turn because or half a turn or something they fit so tight to the bore i i remove i reduce some of the clearances too from the bore so it's a really tight fit for like perfect alignment but um anyways use a heat gun to heat it all up apply the hot melt um put it in a bore rotate it kind of tightens that thread back up and a oh, And then the cool thing too, is that you're ready to shoot that like five minutes later, as soon as it cools. So there's no no waiting um, as well, which is nice. And you can, you can um, replace it just with boiling, stick it in boiling water for 15 seconds. So I'll be out on a hunt and come back to my truck and decide to convert some more field points to broadheads and get a jet boil going. It takes a minute to boil water, 15 seconds, in the water, pull it out with pliers, and I can put a different head in. So even though it's all hot melted in there, it's not really that big a deal to change over. Not as quick as just on threading, of course, but it's not a it's not a major change. And then one nice thing is your hit, you can pull your head out at any time and change your total arrow setup as well. If you decide later, I wish I had a 50 grand hit instead of a 25, you can always make that change. It's not glued in there with the epoxy.
0: And for those that are interested in the Snyder Core System for micros, you offer that shank in all of the different broadheads you offer, correct?
1: Yes, yeah, you can get that in our in our S series, our single bevel, our wide, yeah, our wide solid, and um, and it spans from 110 to 250, I think. So it's quite a weight, quite a span of weights too there. Let's talk about the
0: different offerings you do have. We've talked a little bit about it. Um, Single bevel, I want to talk about in particular in a second, but uh, we talked about the wides, which are basically just a little bit wider than the standards. Then you have the S series and the V series, which I presume stands for solid invented.
1: Yeah, it didn't originally, but that's what we call them up. (laughs) (laughs) There's,
0: you know, typical barroom banter about the differences between the two. What do you feel is a big difference if somebody's trying to decide between a solid series and a vented series, any drawbacks between the two, any advantages of one over the other, or is it kind of personal preference?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the uh, in theory, a vented, a vented blade has, is a little more forgiving because it's got less surface area. Um, you know, I was describing if your arrow is, you know, tipped up and the air flows across it, that. Those, that solid surface will have more of a pressure, you know, more area for that pressure to act. And um, so a vented blade is generally a little more forgiving. Um, that's in theory. In practice, I, I don't see really, I see very little difference between our, say, our V100 and our S125. It's identical blade other than vents. But it's, um, I will say that a few customers do see it a little bit. shoots a little better for them. And that typically would say it just depends on how well your bow is tuned and how straight that arrow comes off. But I would say that those are pretty similar. Um, I see a bigger difference when we get to our wides. Um, our wide 125 is vented. Um our wide 150 on up is solid, um, wide solid. And and that's that that's less forgiving. Um I don't shoot the wide solid, say over fifty. Personally, I wouldn't choose that if I was going to shoot over fifty. Um, I shoot the wide or wide at one twenty five really well to sixty, um, but that's kind of where I would where I would veer more towards our S series or SB if I'm going to shoot eighty or hundred. Um, and I'm sure people trash me for saying I do that, but hey, a follow up shot, I will. You know, I shot a mountain goat at 70 yards one year and it ran out to a cliff about to jump off at 99 and I put another arrow through him and dropped him there and so I see value and have be able to shoot a broadhead accurately to um you know 100 yards so that I would shoot our our standard our, like our s series v series or single bubble I can shoot all those well at that distance I would say um so Anyway, I vented, the positive, it's a little more forgiving. The negative is, there's a little bit more noise to it. There's a little bit more of a hiss to it. Um, original V-series, you can hear a shh, shh, a little shish as it flies by. If you're standing in front of your buddy and he's shooting them. Um, I haven't really, I don't really think that's that loud at the animal until it gets very close. So I don't think it's a big of a deal, but some people want that solid blade to make it a little quieter. So that's, um, that's improvement there. And solids are stronger. A solid blade is stronger than vented. You know, if I bend them in, in half and three point bending until I get them to break a solid blade is going to be stronger than a vented blade. Of course. Um, in practice now we don't break our vented blades either. So they're playing strong enough to get through bone, but that's really what it comes down to. That's the, that's, that's the trade off there.
0: Nice. You made an interesting point. I think a lot of people don't think about, but, hunters that have been around a long time probably do and that is it's okay to carry a couple different broadheads in your quiver as long as they're shooting the same so whether you want to have one for sort of more close-up stuff and then one that shoots a bit a little bit more accurate long range nothing wrong with that right this episode of archery in depth is brought to you by first string the united states based maker of premium bow strings and cables for your bow you bow hunter you're looking to up your game in your bow are your strings and cables maybe a little fried or even worse stock that came with your bow look to upgrade check it out if you go to firststringusa.com for example, the premium line has the Formula X formula. So that's a proprietary formula from BCY just for first string to make a great set of strings. They come in at an excellent price. If you wanna just get a premium set, 109 bucks for a full set of strings and cables that are gonna be way better than the stock set or the fuzzed up set you have. Like a particular team or color on your bow, check it out. You could upgrade to the premium custom set where they can you can custom set your colors, your servings, all that other stuff. If you're ready to take it to the next level, be much happier with your strings and cables, not see peep rotation, things like that. Go to www.firststringusa.com.
1: Check it out. Right. And I, that was kind of a foreign concept to me, not too many years ago, but as I, as I tested all of our heads and I like them, I started liking one or another for different situations. And I will typically carry like alconing. I'll have three or four of either our Say S one twenty five or SB one twenty five, um, and then, or maybe a mix of those two. But I'll typically have some standard size heads, and then a couple of whites, and and I'll I'll knock up whatever I think is most appropriate. If I'm, if I'm elk hunting and I find a wallow and I want to go sit that for the afternoon, and I know my shot's going to be like thirty yards, um, I'll put in a white head. I know it's going to penetrate great through bone through an elk. Um, But, uh, and so when I get a little bigger hole, when I know it's a pretty controlled shot, but if I think my shot might be 70 yards at an elk, I'm going to have knocked up like our S125 or SB125 most of the other time on that hunt.
0: Nice. So we're talking about it. Let's talk about it more the SB single bevel. A lot of people out there have, again, more barroom banter about the advantages, disadvantages of single bevel versus uh, double bevel. I'm curious what your testing tells you. I mean, they're just different broadheads. They have some different aspects. What's the testing tell you about the differences between the two?
1: Yeah, and I, I would say up front that I don't care. We make them both. You know, choose which want. <laughs> <one. laughs> I don't really have like a dog in one fight over the other here. I've got dogs in both fights, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's um, I was for years though, I, I preferred the double bevel. Because I felt in my early testing that it um, had a better combination of of I could get a better like sharpness, edge retention, durability out of that edge versus a single bevel with that pressure on both sides of the bevel equally as it drives through, say bone. um, I liked that better than a single bevel where you get the pressure on one side and it tends to more want to chip out or bend that edge. So inherently, I'd say inherently a double bevel was a little stronger. Um, and that was my thinking and why, and I also thought cutting straight through an animal was probably better than rotating through it just for max penetration. Um, so those are really the reasons why I came out with a double bevel to begin with and continued with those first few years of the company. And then really just, um, through enough people, you know, single bevel became, um, it became popular. A lot of people were talking about single. What's funny is a lot of times that some influencer were talking about going to a single bevel and half the time, what they really meant was a durable two blade head. And, and sometimes they would show a double bevel and call a single bevel even, but it got, it got enough, enough people thinking, Hey, I need a single bevel that we had just tons of customers asking for it. And it, it pushed me to go back and get some more data And really I wanted, initially I thought, I'm just going to get some data to show people why it's not better. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also really realized that all the testing I'd done in the past wasn't with my broadheads. It was with other, you know, single bubbles. And so it wasn't really an apples to apples. So I thought what I need to do is make the best possible single bubble I can at the angle that I think is appropriate for edge strength with our sharpness and then really test the two together. So spent a couple of years doing that. Um, got had increased the edge angle to 32 degrees to get to strength to where I needed it to be, to go through bone without damage. Um, and, and then, and then I got a pretty, you know, one that worked pretty well It was pretty, uh, pretty impressive for some things. And so I don't really have a preference yet between the two. I like them both, but I'll just kind of tell you what the differences are. I already told you kind of some of the advantages of the double bevel inherently a bit stronger edge. Um, but a, but a single bevel, you can get to be strong enough with, you know, the right steel and angle and things like that. Um, and I feel like with our tool steel, it is strong enough. And then the advantage you get is this rotation. So having that bevel with all the pressure on one side pushes that blade to the side and it pushes, you know, say the top blade one direction, the bottom blade, you know, if you're looking at horizontal going into the animal, the bottom blade's going to go the other direction and it's going to cause this rotation. And your arrow is already rotating. Ideally, if you've got you know, offset or helical veins. And so if you right fletch you choose the right single bubble and they'll rotate together through the animal. And there wasn't much of a penetration loss like I thought there would be because I feel you've got that rotational momentum of your arrow already. And it's kind of providing some of that, you know, torque going through there. Um, and so... I was a bit concerned about loss of penetration, even though you you hear people say there'd be more, I don't really see the physics of why there'd be more necessarily. Um, And I, I see great penetration with double bubble. So I don't think it necessarily penetrates more. What it does though, is rotates its way through. So it can, you know, the, the holes and, and we also offer a single bubble with a single bubble bleeder, which is kind of my favorite of the single bubble options because I like the cross cut, I think it opens up holes causes more bleeding doesn't hurt you on flight because it's fairly small, not a lot of surface area to affect flight. Why not get, you know, 1.8 inches total cut um, with that three quarter inch bleeder um, added. So anyway, with that, and then rotating through, you get, you get a wound channel that's kind of rotating as it cuts. And it's not just these straight cuts, but it's, it's, it's a bit more trauma, a bit more open holes. So that's, I know I've been talking a lot, but that's basically the, uh, the story there. And what you get with a single bevel, the cool thing about it is, yeah, that rotation and kind of the wound channel from it.
0: That's cool. Your own testing made you basically change your mind on it, right? You're like, well, let's try it with a good one. And turns out it works pretty good with a good one.
1: Yeah. You know, engineering over the years, I've done product development for companies, other companies for 25 years. And I try not to let my, personal biases and my gut feeling or whatever upfront make the decision on, on products. It's, you make data-driven decisions based on good experimentation and testing and results. And when, and when you think something's inferior to another, you think about, well, what's inferior about it and how can I change the design to get rid of those issues and make it better and really give it the best chance of, of winning, um, or of doing well, I would say. And so, yeah, I try to keep an open mind and, um, let the data make the decisions of data and kind of observations there. And, and, and w- after that testing, I thought, well, there's some cool things about it. And if people want it, I'm going to offer it. Cause I think it's a great product. I've shot a lot of animals with our single bevels the last two years. I've used it prior to that I've shot a lot of animals with their double bubbles, Um, and now I kind of go back and forth to get more real time kind of observations back and forth. And I would say performance is similar in that they're both killing things quickly. Um, when you hit, you know, close to the shoulder in that vital V, they're both, I mean, a lot of animals dropping in sight, you know, in five seconds, um, performance has been great with both, but just kind of observing the differences and, I'm happy. I'd be really happy shooting either one. People ask me which is better. I'm like, well, I just explained to you the differences, you know, shoot whichever one gets you more excited and gives you more confidence. I think they can both work really well for you.
0: Yeah. There's no better. They're just
1: different. Yeah. I mean, they there's little trade-offs, um, sure. between the two, but they both can be, I, I feel like I've engineered them both to be very, very effective, very good products without really any, any flaws at this point. And I, I don't, I didn't feel that was the case a few years ago when I was testing other single bubbles. I feel like currently both of them are great products to use.
0: And you had mentioned the bleeder blades on them. Other than the flight, would you see any disadvantage to using the bleeder blade blades? seems like only an advantage.
1: Yeah. For my, kind of my opinion is North American big game. Just, just use the bleeders. I think they're going to help you. Um, there's if you're if you're gonna be for sure going through like thick slab of bone like you would on say a cape buffalo asian buffalo where you have these thick you know ribs of three quarter inch thick um that you are for sure going to hit and have to split um and you really just on those big animals that you know hippo a lot of big african game where you want to just maximize penetration over anything else um that's when I pull that's when I take away the bleeders. In fact, we call them our our buff series, like S1 S150 buff, which means no bleeders, because that's really the only time I recommend them is like you're gonna go shoot a Cape Buffalo. Um and you know, other people they, they, they don't want them, they feel like a right, it's better without them or they don't want to worry about sharpening them, whatever. If you don't like bleeders, we offer um our buff series and 125, 150, 175, 200 uh, 250 where you can shoot without the bleeders, but that'd be my decision is, um, if you have max penetration is just paramount. Okay. Take them away, but they really don't hurt penetration much. I would say maybe like 5% on most game. It, it's a small amount. It's not going to keep you from passing through a lot of times. The bone is broken away bigger than the size of the bleeder before it gets there. Um, and I, I really like the cross cut to open up holes. So I agree. That's my opinion on it.
0: Nice. We touched on it a little bit, but I was really curious in learning more about impact collars. Before I started trying iron wheels, I had never been a fan of outserts, impact collars, anything like that. But once I started doing it, and I I like the Snyder core system, it's really helpful, I think, not only toughness, but when you're getting the base of that broadhead to be true and flat against the arrow, I think it's extremely helpful curious what your your testing and just research indicates about collars and and kind of why iron will has them and and what you think is some benefits of them
1: yeah you know through early um early on i was doing a lot of durability testing on the different steels different ferromaterials materials and i was shooting shooting bones a lot you know cattle bones femur bones elk bones um whatever knuckles um because i really wanted to get or feral and blade materials to the point where you could go through the heaviest of bone and it would still spin true and really not be damaged. But the problem is I was wrecking a lot of arrows doing that, especially when I had not quite hit square, It'd be a glancing, glancing hit on a femur bone. Then I would bend, um, bend and damage arrows. Well, I should also say that also when I spin true, I started really liking the, um, the hit system because the, the broadhead shank aligns directly to the id of the arrow so if you start out with a really straight arrow and and early on i was using fmjs a lot because i mean those things spin true fmjs like they're less than a thousandths in in off of straightness i mean super true spinning so i'd say use use an fmj and um the broadhead al- would align to the id there they hit insert down inside so I knew if I tested the broadheads on FMJ, I wouldn't have to worry about the arrow um, so much as the broadhead. Well, then I learned with hard impacts, you can bend FMJs and that could be a problem too. <laughs> right. So then I went to more um, carbon arrows that had a good straightness and hit inserts. But then I saw with hard side impacts, sometimes you would break out because all you had is that carbon kind of holding the broadheads in. It's going through too many arrows. So I started making these, um, collars, which is basically, a basically a footer, um, you know, footer in the past, people would cut aluminum arrows, um, and just put it over their arrow over their wood shafts. You know, a lot of traditional guys did to foot the shaft, um, and add some strength to it. But it was basically that concept, but I wanted also a flange that went over to the front that, that adds a lot of strength to that cylinder when you have a flange on it. Um, also protects the front of the carbon and also wanted them out of hardened steel. Um, and so I was just making those myself um, about an inch long. The hit insert sits in there 0. 0.458 inches. So it was overlapping the hit insert by a good half inch and man, I quit wrecking arrows. Um, I could shoot through bones. I started using them in hunting more. And I, I've got arrows that are five years old that have been through so many animals and I can just keep reusing them. Um, never plan to make it a product for sale, but I had enough people see it and friends ask for it. Um, you know, I, um, filed a patent on it. I decided to come out with it and man, it's almost things like, like crazy. So, um, it's, it's, a. Uh, I I think what it gives you is you can get the much improved alignment of. On, a two, on say 204 diameter arrow of having your broadhead shank aligned directly to the ID of a carbon, of a, of an arrow. And if you use a straight carbon arrow, man, that's guaranteed to spin true really. And then, and it's spinning true is pretty important for good flight out of fixed head. If it's, if it's off to the side and it's, you know, spinning in a big loop as it shoots, it's not going to fly well. Um, so you get all the advantages of alignment and then reinforce it build that strength in back into your arrow versus having it mounted an inch out in front. Um, a lot of advantages to it.
0: Like it. Um, one of the things we hadn't talked about that I noticed on the website is you had mentioned a little bit about knives. So iron will also offers hunting and skinning knives. I, I didn't look at, at them too closely, but are they a similar steel that you're using with broadheads or are they a different steel?
1: Same steel, same, pretty much, um, applied all the, treatment sharpening knowledge that I went through over the years in, into a ultralight knife and really I hadn't planned to make knives. I was just I do a lot of backcountry hunting. so I'm um, a bit of an ounce counter. Um, I'm not quite as bad as I used to be. I'll add, I add some weight in for you know comfort and, um, and you know where needed but I was really kind of struggling to find uh, an, an ultralight knife that was made out of a good steel. Um, and I think there's been a few more added to the market in, in recent years, but, um, I still don't think any are as light as, as ours, like Benchmade Altitude came out with a light knife, good steel, um, 90 V it's hard to sharpen. So take a little skill, but I mean, that's a nice ultralight knife weighs 1.9 ounces. I think, um, ours is about the same length and it weighs like 1.1.0 1. ounces. So I, I tried to go because of our toughness of our um of our A2 tool steel i could go thinner through the the handle and you can bend that and it doesn't break even at 60 rock we'll see whereas if it was stainless it, it would it um it probably you probably couldn't go that quite that thin so anyway that's how i was able to get ultra light and um yeah i made them because i wanted to I was carrying around a couple of knives that would weigh, you know, several ounces each to do the job I wanted to on an elk. And I was able to replace them with one knife that even, even with um, our G10 handle machine, machine to handle. Now it's still like 1.6 ounces, something like that. So. Crazy, um, light. Crazy light. Yeah. Ultra light and it'll hold an edge. Well, and I can do, It's kind of a unique design. We do it with and without the sharpened top edge. You can use that sharpened top edge to make all the hide cuts. So um, it's almost kind of two knives in one for that. And for me, I I prototyped that, I tested that over the years, kind of got just how I wanted it. And now personally with that, I can can completely skin, quarter, debone an elk and, and a deer without even touching that knife up, using that top edge and that bottom edge. And so... To me, that's what I wanted. Something I could just pack in, not even have to take a sharpener and get through an elk for sure. Let um, me make kind of a specialty Skinner now, which is still maybe 1.2 ounces, it's still real light.
0: I like it. Well, I was hoping to sort of wrap it up talking at the very end because it's not what is about, but I, I know for a fact without asking you about it, I know you've done testing with mechanical expandables and Will doesn't offer those. And so I'm just curious for, for the folks that are out there, you know, we talked a little bit about flight characteristics and how you can get a fixed head to fly great in an aero setup. I'm curious what, what you want to tell people about, you know, that say, well, it has to be mechanical because they just shoot better and they have whatever bigger cutting uh, sizes and all that stuff. Why does iron will decide no this is the right way to do things and and a fixed blade is the right way to to hunt animals break bone and and hunt successfully
1: yeah you know there's just trade-offs there and you got to decide what's more important to you um mechanical is going to have there's less area to it so it's going to be easier to stabilize your bow it's going to hit closer to field points Typically, now this is assuming that it's straight and spins true and there's been a lot of talk about bending broadheads so they spin true lately. (laughs) Let me touch on that for a second. If if you're bending, well, first, if you're bending it, have to bend it to get it spin true. You probably have, it's probably kind of poor quality material of your components and your broadhead. And it's kind of junk. If, If you can't just screw it in and have it spin true, something in there is... Is junk, right? All right. If you're if you're gonna bend, if you want to bend it, then to straighten it. And a lot of people advocating this that are good shots out there. Um the problem with if you bend a multi-part mechanical assembly, bend it to try and straighten it out, you really it does not gonna stay there. Push you can push it right back to where you bent it from very easily. Um, because you've just changed clearances, you just kind of shifted things around. It's, shoot in a target once it's going to move back to where it was it it's it's not reliably in this new position um so a lot of people saying do this i'm saying yeah it's not a great idea i've i've seen i've seen it done on not you know not brides other mechanical assemblies in the past and i can tell you that things don't stay there when you try and just bend assemblies to a new spot um so bad 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 idea well, let's just go back to the trade-offs. Let's just assume it's it's well made. It's spinning true. What are the what are the trade-offs? So the advantage is there: less surface area, easier to stabilize and get to fly with your field points. Um, your bow doesn't have to be as tuned. Your fletchings don't have to be a, necessarily appropriate, um, and and it might do just fine for you. If your bows, you should really well. Anyway, those are the advantages. It's going to probably shoot better for you. If your bow's tuned, your arrow's not spined, your fletching's not appropriate. Um, so it's, it's kind of easier to get to fly. Um, that's kind of where I would stop. I mean, some people say bigger hole. Well, yeah, maybe bigger entrance hole. It's probably not going all the way through. Maybe not an exit hole. You could kind of debate on, if is that better than a, a, a large fixed blade? I would say not because I think uh, like our wide fixed blade is going to get you that exit hole and slice all the way through. So I think it's kind of debatable on on the bigger hole and quicker kills, that kind of thing. But I, I won't say there's a disadvantage there. You, I mean, they can, they're kind of zero or hero, right? I mean, they can work great and, um, and have blood everywhere and people be very happy. So I won't debate that one so much. I'll say more. The advantages. is, you know, they can fly more easily um, with the setup. The negatives are they just have a lot more failure modes, right? If you, they can open up while you're walking through the brush. They can open up on the shot before they get to the animal. They can not open up going through the animal. They can cartwheel off an animal on a steep shot. They can stop on centered vertically on a rib sometimes. They can stop on scapula quite often, um spine. Um, there's a lot of situations in which the penetration is going to be poor because of those long blades, long, flexible blades that can just suck up that energy on the entrance on, on opening and on hitting anything that can make those things bend. It can really suck up the energy. So a lot more potential failure modes are the negatives. Um, fixed head on the other hand, it's just I mean like an iron wheel, a durable fixed head that can stay sharp and cut through and slice all the way through. Um, I'm definitely going to take that every time over mechanical, but the negatives there are there's more surface area in the front. So it's more important for your bow to be tuned. And it really, if you can do these three things, they're going to fly well for you, you know, tune your bow. So your arrows coming straight off of it, Um, have correctly spined arrows, you know, for your arrow length, um, draw weight, bow poundage, number of, you know, number of grains up front. And if you don't know what that means, you know, look, look it up, you know, try pinwheel archers advantage, look at bow charts, but be properly spined. Um, and the third thing is have enough vein on the back to stabilize the broadhead on the front. And the bigger, longer the head is, the more difficult it will, the more unstable it would be, or the, or the less forgiving it will be if you're, If you're not tuned, um, if your form's not good, stuff like that, I would say our, like our S series our SB series, even when I took my bow out of tune and can get the bear shaft to hit a full foot left of my flat shaft at 40 yards, I had minimal difference between field points and our S 125s at 40 yards. Um, it wasn't until I went to the wide solid that I was getting that, you know, few inches, of difference. And that's, and that's, and that depended on which vein. With with the right vein, I could pull that back in, even with even, and that's a pretty untuned bow. So, I mean, to me, there's, there's really no reason a person can't get like a standard size head, say like our S125 or S100 size head to fly really well. If you can't just go to a mechanical, um, it's not really solving your problems because you're probably, have excessive arrow fish tailing or flexing to the point where you're losing a ton of energy that you should really fix that problem anyway mm-hmm. um if a mechanical gets you to hit closer it's still kind of a double whammy there you've got less energy because you have some issue and it takes more energy to open it up mm-hmm. so if if you read between the lines like through all that i kind of said there's no good reason to shoot them <laughs> but but really those are the trade-offs and uh and why you might choose one over the other but it's it's what's important to you do you want to put the time in to tune your bow make sure your arrows is right spined right or do you just want to quick go hunting with your bow as it is right now in those arrows and and not deal with the issues i guess yeah
0: put the timing in making sure it all works correctly tuning your bow to your arrow is is huge and like you said it, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to shoot a, a fixed blade as good if not better than a mechanical i think it's also worth mentioning that. I don't know that I've ever seen a mechanical bust through a shoulder blade, but for sure fixed blades do.
1: Yeah. And I've, I've tested a lot of mechanicals. Um, I I hate to comment on things that I haven't actually tested. Um, I'm shooting them through, I'm doing this in the lab, but I'm shooting through say hide and meat and shoulder blades and, and elk or audit or, you know, other animals where I've, I've kept those parts or I'm shooting through, I've shot some through, through a moose femurs. Um, I could tell you our like our S series heads or, um, we'll go straight through that moose femur, um, and look good. And I've yet to see a mechanical that doesn't just explode when it hits, it's those heavy bones there. So, um, and then through scapulas typically, Sometimes they'll just hang up, not go through. Sometimes they'll go through with no blades left on them, or sometimes the blades will just be very. Um, this is through the thin part of the scapula. Um, blades will be just very bent with no edges left on them. So you know, just pushing tissue aside and and not not doing an effective job at that point.
0: Yeah, if your mechanical becomes a field tip in essence, because the blades break off or they bend apart, then you're you're losing the whole purpose of it.
1: Right. Exactly. And. You know, to be honest, even just through hide and, um, well, just through hide, those mechanical blades, because they're so long, you know, two inch, say two inch long and thin. And as you talked about that trade-off between hardness and, and brittleness on stainless steels, um, they have to go lower in hardness. So they're typically down in that 46 Rockwell C range. Well, that's not a very good edge at all. Um, you can't get it very sharp. You know, go tell a knife maker you want to make a knife with a 46 Rockwell C edge, right? And uh, you can't get it very sharp and it doesn't hold the edge. So it goes through that hide and it's dull. So right away, you're already not slicing tissue like you could have if you were using a better steel, but they have to go that low. Because otherwise, the blades would just snap too easily. People would complain. People in general are happier with a blade that bends than breaks, I think, on a mechanical. So people seem to put up with, you know, when they get the head on the other side and look at it and the ed- and the edges aren't sharp and the, they're rolled over the blades are bent, um, cause it just went through ribs. I think they feel like, ah, it's okay. I got the animal, but a lot of times that happens right on the entrance. So it's, it's, um, not cutting that effectively.
0: I have to ask you, cause I thought it was hilarious when I saw it. There's a new commercial for some new set of knives. They're made out of stainless steel. And they're chopping all sorts of stuff like they do on all those infomercials, but they, you know, they're basically saying, this is just uh, a light stainless steel that they're making these knives out of. And knowing, you know, a little bit about broadheads, I was like, oh man, these are such junk. I can't believe they're selling these to people. It's hilarious.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, if you just say steel or stainless steel, there's like so many types and alloying and everything. So it's, um, you know it's hard it's hard to say all i could say you know in general stainless steels means there's 13 percent chromium or more that's kind of the definition and so the mechanical properties just aren't as good and you know people might say hey i've got a stainless steel blade and it's great well yes you can there are some great stainless blade steels um out there they're not just you know there's more alloying elements to them to get them to be have some kind of special qualities but um just in general, when you're trying to do, um, you know, you don't make a hammer out of stainless steel. You don't make an ax out of stainless steel. Um, when, when things take a pounding, you don't really want stainless steel. They don't do, they don't do have a great combination of impacts, impact strength, that toughness when you also want a good edge there.
0: Yeah. And, you know, price point, you know, traditionally I'd say archers hunters are are sort of cheap by nature, but you really do get what you pay for. Like those knife sets. You can't get six knives for 30 bucks and expect that you're gonna get a really good knife. That's just not gonna happen. Same thing with broadheads. If you expect to spend you know five bucks on a broadhead, it's not gonna be a good broadhead. And like you were talking about, for the amount of engineering and everything else that's gone into your broadheads, it's, it's really a smoking deal. I bet the profit margin isn't particularly big on those, depending on how much steel you're buying.
1: No, I mean, if a, a normal businessman would be selling this for twice as much as we are. If you look at the manufacturing costs in this and it, it really these blades, it's like what I would do if I wanted to make the perfect knife is, is what I do to these blades. And um, yeah, it's it's a bargain price. It really is for what the engineering, and what you get in it. And but, you know, I, I want to make my goal here is to make the best performing products to make me a better bow hunter really. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I enjoy, you know, helping others out as well to be more, more successful. But, um, yeah, being a mechanical engineer, developing products for other companies for 25 years, I fought that battle too many times where I'd have like, I come up with something that, Hey, performance can be doubled. If we do this, it's going to cost more, but we get much better performance. And I, and I'd be the engineering rep in these, in these product development meetings. And, you know, sales and marketing would be in there saying, "Yeah, oh, we can't sell it for any more, um, so it's not worth it." And you know, business guys would be looking at like, "How much profit are we going to make?" Nah, we're not going to use a better steel, for instance. Um, and I always said, "I can't. I'd, I'd love to have my own company someday and just make decisions based on product performance. You know, price it where you need to to have a have a viable company, but um, not make." choices just to make a little more money that quarter um or that year or whatever um i think that's kind of short-lived too um i see a lot of products out there decisions they make are all based on lower cost manufacturing rarely are they made based on really improved product performance Um, and that's the case in the broadhead market a lot um in in my opinion and uh yeah I've, i've just decided with my company Hey, it's, uh, it's not all about the money here. It's, I want to make great performing products. And I feel like our customers that have used them, um, you know, most, a lot of our sales are just repeat customers and it's because they've used them. know they're good. They, they trust that we're not going to sell them something that's a bad product. And that's, um, that's my mentality and what, and what I want to do, um, with, with this company.
0: It's awesome. I think you've achieved it. I think you've achieved it. Anything else you'd like people to know about iron will products, anything else you want to promote or something we did, we didn't go over that. Maybe I, I didn't go over that you want to touch base on.
1: Not really. I think, um, you know, people that haven't tried it, I, I think you probably don't really understand how greatly improved performance can be. If you just haven't experienced that. And and I know that I exceeded my expectations of what I thought a broadhead could do through an animal. Um, and so I, I'd say that, I think there's still a lot of people out there to say, Oh, they're not worth it. They're, you know, how much better could the performance be? Um, you know, ask somebody who's just try them and it's really the right situation. You know, if you shoot it behind the shoulder, um, it's a perfect broadside on a deer, you're probably not going to be blown away. But if it, if it turns into it and you, if you have to go through that shoulder bone and it still penetrates through and sticking eight inches in the dirt, that's when you're impressed. So I'd say people that say it's a bunch of hype. They're worth, you know, they're worth what you're saying. They are, um, man, just try one and see what you think. Um, I think, I think you'd be impressed by the performance.
0: I think so too. And, uh, yeah, like you said, you pay what you get for. And like you, it only takes losing a monster elk because you stuck it in a shoulder or whatever else before you decided, you know what? I do want the best I could possibly get. Then all of a sudden your mentality changes. <laughs> it changes. Um, well, I appreciate it, man. I really appreciate your time. I do love the products myself. I know other people that do. You've done a great job. The hunting industry thanks you for everything. So thanks so much. If anything else comes out, I'll let them know, but uh, we're g- you find everything on your website, right? Ironwelloutfitters.com.
1: Yeah. Ironwallfitters.com. You can check out our YouTube channel for some how-to videos and more about the products. Um, that's Ironwall And if you're into social media, we're on Instagram, Facebook, things like that. Um, Ironwall Fitters there as well.
0: I love it. Well, thank you, Bill. I really appreciate your time. Really appreciate everything you've done. It's great broadhead. Hopefully if somebody's out there that hasn't tried it, they will try it. I'm sure they'll fall in love with it just like everybody else. Thanks for having me on Marty and and
1: good luck on the sale count coming up.
0: Well, thank you very much. You as well. Hopefully you're traveling around whacking a bunch of stuff and putting it in the freezer.